it's easier to manipulate society when they're not allowed to think or to criticize or to oppose or to negotiate. So oppressing the word no is the easiest way because by oppressing the word no, you are oppressing the challenge of authority because then you can only say yes. But this fear of opposing authority, I think, should be reconsidered. Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or As today's guest will attest, someone who has been on the ground at a pivotally influential time and place in history to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. In this episode, we're going to dive into the nuts and bolts of one simple word, one simple two letter word. No. At its very definition, no is described as just a negative answer or decision, which sounds very easy, very simple. However, in reality, for many of us, myself included, summoning the courage to say the word no often feels impossible. So with that in mind, what if there was more than one way to say no? What if there were a thousand ways And today we're going to dive into what it is to say no with clarity and conviction and even look deeply at the question of whether it's possible to say a fiercely powerful no with kindness. Today's conversation is with the incredible artist and art historian Bahia Shihab. In Arabic, the literal translation, as I found out, for the word no is no and a thousand times no so definite I love it and it's it's concept a thousand times no it's this concept that started as we will get into as an artwork it became a book it reformed into a protest and it went on to be heard as one voice of a revolution and it was during the Egyptian revolution in 2011 back in 2011 the first day of which the 25th of January It's literally now referred to as the day of anger. Bahia was overcome with rage against the dictators, the violence and and what became military rule. And like many of the people I meet and the people I know and I get to speak to through this line of work, she describes herself as a quiet person. In fact, she said the words, I am a quiet person. I don't know how to scream. And so shouting and screaming on the streets in protest, it was never going to be something that came naturally to her. So instead of screaming, after witnessing the endless stories and images of atrocities flooding both her city and the internet, she reached a point where she realized she could no longer choose to stay at home safely with her children. She had to find some way to contribute her voice. So she chose a way of communicating that she did know a way to contribute her know that she did understand and a way that drew on her talents as an artist. Having been invited back in 2010 to participate in an exhibition to commemorate 100 years of Islamic art in Europe, she had already researched and collated over a thousand symbols for the word no in Arabic script. Can you believe that? A thousand symbols just in one language that represent one simple word. She produced both an artwork and a book documenting the history of these symbols. And so she went back to them. She went back to those symbols and she began spraying them on the streets, in public squares, anywhere she could find, channeling these 1,000 no's, in her own words, just like ammunition. No to military rule. No to violence. No to dictatorship. No to beating women. The impact of her work and the work of many, many Egyptian artists on the streets that were there at that time, it started conversations. It provoked debate, not always positive, and that is the the very essence of debate. 
that it involves two sides. Whenever you say a no, you need to be able to hear what comes back. Yet above all, at a time when a regime could and did literally turn off all the phones in a country, it allowed the voiceless to be heard. Mahia has since been selected as one of the BBC's top 100 women for two consecutive years. She's been invited as a TED Global Fellow and she became the first woman from the Arab region to receive the UNESCO Shahjah Prize for Arab Culture. In this deeply affecting conversation, we covered the challenge of saying a fierce no when being loud doesn't really come naturally. Why actions and art can often be louder than words. Exactly why such a small word can be so powerful, both to hear and to say that it's able to start and stop revolutions. Why street art can be pivotal in starting and monitoring progressive conversations has always been a passion of mine. The innate power of storytelling as a tool to not only remember the past, shape the future, but also to avoid making the same mistakes. And finally, the role of empathy when setting boundaries and why a kind no can sometimes be one of the most powerful acts of love and sometimes alter history itself. One quote that stayed with me, there's many things that stayed with me after this conversation, but the most powerful one was this. You can crush the flowers, but you can't delay spring. So this episode is for anyone that's felt or currently feels crushed by the word no, by the strength it takes to express it and to hear it, and then to deal with the consequences that often inevitably follow. In particular, it dives into the story of of one woman who also represents many others, both in Egypt and globally, who are brave enough to show up and not only say it, but to say it without resorting to violence. Anyway, enough of me. You you may notice the internet drops in and out a few times with this one. Unfortunately, the connection wasn't fantastic in Cairo on this day, but sometimes you've, you've just got to work with what you got. So please enjoy, take as much as you can out of my conversation with the incredible Bahia Shiha. Welcome to the podcast, Bahia Shihab. Thank you for having me. Bahia, it's so welcome. I know that you've managed to find a quiet spot in, in Cairo for us to be able to do this, so I very much appreciate you doing that. Um, I want to kick off, there's a question that I always ask at the beginning of the podcast, and for you, I'm actually particularly interest, interested in your answer. It's whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And the reason that I ask that is I, I find that sometimes there's a myth that somebody can't own their voice or stand up and be heard, make an impact, unless they're an extrovert. And I, I, I have not found that to be true. However, I'm asking everybody that comes on to take a, a field sample. So how do you consider yourself? I am a terrible introvert. I am uh, very comfortable in my space um, and it was uh, very very difficult for me to become a public speaker because I'm a researcher and an artist and I really prefer my quiet private space. So I am definitely an introvert. There's there's a beautiful quote, um, we're going to get to it later, but where you said, you know, I am I am a very quiet person. I don't know how to scream. And that just struck me as something that many people could relate to. That, you know, some people know how to shout. Some people know how to um, expand their body, expand their voice, um, stand up and say no very loudly. Whereas that, to you, isn't something that comes naturally. Yes, not not really. It's uh, it was a challenge being uh, on the street because I I didn't feel like I uh, 
I was so impressed by what everybody else was doing, like their boldness, their courage, the way they could scream out in a very loud voice against oppression. And it bothered me that I didn't have this kind of freedom. But I also discovered that we, we, can, we can express, we can be loud, but it's not necessarily always through our voice. Sometimes actions are also louder than our voice. And, and in my case, the, the artwork, I wanted my artwork to express just as loudly as a scream on the street would. So I think we can, and to me, I'm, I'm trained as a designer, so we can actually scream using, our, um, using a visual language. So what I tried to do was uh, communicate or, sc or scream loudly or uh, communicate loudly uh, through the visuals that I was spraying on the street. So let's go back. Let's go back to 2010. Let's start by going there. When you had said that as an artist, you were invited to participate in an exhibition to commemorate 100 years of Islamic art in Europe. And the only condition was that you had to use Arabic script. And you, you said in that moment that as an artist, a woman and an Arab or a human being living in the world in 2010, you only had one answer and, and that was no. Now, you eventually, I know you didn't say no and, and you went on to take part in that and we'll, we'll talk about where that led you. But why did you want to say no? What was the driving force behind that urge to say no at that point? I um, I'm uh, I grew up in the civil war in Lebanon, so to me uh, uh, the war was a was part of the was was part of my upbringing, and after leaving Lebanon when I graduated from um, from the university to work abroad, I. Uh, I didn't realize the kind of survival skills that I had as somebody who grew up in the middle of a war. So when the revolution in Cairo started, um, I discovered that I had tools that others didn't. I think growing up in a war zone uh, gives you more empathy. It, uh, it helps you understand what's really important in life, what is meaningful, uh, what is the... Um, what are the basics of being a human being, what it means to be a human being. And so why, why did you want to say no um, when they asked you to be part of that exhibition? I wasn't happy about a lot of things that were taking place in the world. Um, um, as I said, I grew up in a war, but there were still so many wars taking place around the world. The environment is struggling. Human rights are, uh, in, at least in my part of the world, are not being respected. Uh, women's, I mean, women's rights are human rights. Also, women's rights in, in many parts of the world are, are, not, are not being granted. And I know that it's still a very long struggle, but we really need to start somewhere. And that somewhere for me is to say no to everything that you think is wrong in the world. And I don't feel like we have enough people saying no, because those who are driving the agendas are benefiting from our silence. So I think if we, as the people, all collectively start saying no to the things that we want to change, change will happen. So I think that is why I started saying no. Now, you said that in, in Arabic, no literally translates as no and a thousand times no, which is so definite. You know, there's, there's almost something very freeing in, in saying it that way. What was your, before the revolution, what was your relationship to the word no? Well, it's um, it's a beautiful ligature, and I I study Arabic Arabic epigraphy historically. So the writings in Arabic in ancient times, I study their shape, 
I'm fascinated at how creative and magnificent the Arabic script is. So the shape of the word no, which is the combination of two letters, is very exotic. It's uh, Sometimes it's combined, sometimes it's intertwined. So I thought that maybe if I find... Uh, a thousand different shapes of those and that would be an interesting statement for me to make as an artwork so in Arabic the term no and a thousand times no is when you want to confirm the no like you say no and a thousand times no but the shape of the letter itself is beautiful and fascinating in it in its design so when I started collecting the thousand no's I thought I would not find a thousand. So this was my only fear that maybe I will not find the thousand letters. But I started, and a year later, I had to stop at a thousand. It's hard to it's hard to imagine. You know, it's it's such a tiny word, and yet there are a thousand, as you said, more than a thousand symbols in one in one culture alone that represent it. What did you learn about the word no in researching all of those symbols about the power of such a small word? What was really fascinating is the places where I found it in the words and the sentences and the literature and the science books and the mosque mosque walls and the carpets and the chairs and the and the cups and the bowls and the bells and the candle stands. So um, it showed me the breadth of the civilization. It, so, it showed me the richness, the intellectual vigor of the civilization. And um, it showed me the debate. It showed me the acceptance of criticism, uh, the dialogue, the conversations that took place across uh, the centuries. Um, and it honestly, when I hung the artwork in the gallery at the Haus der Kunst in Germany, um, I felt very empowered to have all that history behind me. To me, as a woman, to have access to so much culture and so much his history um, and a very tiny word that means no and that to me now stands for or standing against oppression um, and facing injustice, it, it, it empowered me. Um, it, it turned history into, um, into a support. Did you, while you were doing all of that research, did you find any clues about why, again, such a small word, why we have become so afraid of saying it and of hearing it i think we i think it's a conditioning we are conditioned uh, to accept it's easier to manipulate uh, society when when they're not allowed to think or to criticize or to oppose or to negotiate or to request change um, and people are always afraid of change. So uh, oppressing the word no is the easiest way because by oppressing the word no, you are um, oppressing the challenge of authority because then you can only say yes. So I think uh, we are now, or at least many of us are conditioned to accept and comply. Of course, we need to follow rules because we need to live in a civilized society. But I, this fear of opposing authority, I think, should be uh, re-questioned re and uh, reconsidered. Fast, fast forward to, um, to the 25th of January 2011, and the Egyptian revolution started hundreds of thousands of people protesting, demanding the overthrow of, um, of President Mubarak. Do you remember what you felt when you first found out about those protests? Oh, we were very 
I was very afraid because uh, at the time I didn't understand what was going on. I had no idea, like many, many of the people, we never thought it would escalate um, the national uh, media stations were not really communicating the reality on the ground. They were downplaying what was happening. But at the same time, online, we started seeing images and sounds and videos of what was really taking place. So the first feeling is fear because we don't understand what is going on. And then on the 28th, uh, the government shut down all the phones and we were cut off from the world, the whole country. All of the phones, um, the internet, the cellular phones were disconnected. And that was then I, when I realized that the government is going to be overthrown because at this day they, they didn't realize that at this day and age such a move is, I mean, un, unthinkable. You, you can't cut off a whole country anymore. You, you just cannot do that. Not at, at least a country like Egypt that is full of youth, that is full of energy, that is full of potential. Um, you can't, as a government, wake up in the morning and cut off everything. And and I think on that day I realized that uh, major change is coming to Egypt. You said that, that life stopped for 18 days. And obviously, you know, a lot happened in those 18 days, the phones being cut off, just being, just being a part of that and a part of the efforts during those times to prevent voices from being heard, prevent, prevent communication. Then after those 18 days, um, the president resigned and many thought the revolution had succeeded. However, nine months later, nine months later, you found yourself um, spray, spray painting street art on the walls in a public square what was the, I know that one of the moments that led you to there was seeing an image on your newsfeed which became a, a kind of defining no moment for you. What was it about that image that you saw that sent you to the streets? I think it was also the, The accumulation of images, it was the accumulation of what I was seeing. But in that image specifically, it was the, the dead bodies that are being dragged and stacked um, with a lot of garbage around them. And to me, the uh, human life to be treated with so much... Um, to dishonor the body of a dead person on the street in a public square and to drag it with garbage. To me, that visual was, um, still is very uh, difficult uh, to, to accept. Um, I know sometimes I've seen much worse. I've seen eyes uh, with snipers who took out the eyes of protesters. I've seen protesters bleeding, their bodies covered with uh, bullet wounds. I've seen uh, a lot of very graphic images, but I think for me this one was more, uh, was painful. I think that it came after consuming so much, after trying to document so much on the revolution for nine months. I thought that maybe Maybe by that time, things have, could have changed, but they, they weren't. So it, um, I think it was also the accumulation of things and not only that, that image specifically. You, um, going back to what we said before, you know, you, you have said that I am a, I'm a very quiet person. I don't know how to scream. And so rather than, 
joining the, the voices on the streets, you decided to go back to the, the thousand no's, the thousand symbols that you had found. Can you tell me what you did, what your choice was with those symbols? Yeah, I, I started spraying them on the streets in Cairo. And um, based on everything I had been seeing over the past nine months, I had a clear idea of what I wanted to say no to. So I started taking every no and adding um, a message that means something to me and that I want to stop. So the first no was no to military rule. And then many, many no's uh, followed based on some are were based on specific events that, that were taking place, like no to stripping the people for the woman that was disrobed on the street, revealing her blue bra, um, and to no to burning books when they started burning um, a very important uh, public library in Tahrir, it, uh, to no to blinding heroes when when snipers were placed on the rooftops of buildings and they were targeting the eyes of young men uh, with the purpose of blinding them. Um, and no to sectarian divisions, which is more uh, general, not specific to one event, but rather a series of events where, where there, there are constant attempts to break the social fabric um, um, of um, between Egyptians, so um, each no was was either targeted at a specific event or at a more general concept that I was finding a pattern um, happening within in the country. You said that those those no's came from from you, from the book, from your research, like like ammunition. Did it? How did it feel that? The first time you did that, the first time you sprayed no on the walls, did you expect it to have an impact? Did you did you care whether it had an impact or not? It was just your contribution. I couldn't not be on the street. And um, at, at the time, I, I didn't care about the consequences and I, I never thought it would be... Um, meaningful to anyone because there were hundreds of artists on the street and for me to to be the only person speaking up for everybody is 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 um is a distortion of history there were hundreds of people painting on the street and we were having these very lively conversations and and um for two years i would spray something on a wall and another uh, artist would come and, and retaliate and uh, some people would um we were having conversations it was a uh, always a uh, uh, going back and forth we would all go down comment on the same thing in different styles uh, saying this the same message in different ways i was not thinking of 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 consequences i was not thinking of safety i was not thinking of being uh, the sole speaker for the revolution, what I was focusing on was I really could not stay at home. It was um, it was unbearable for me to see all this uh, death on the street, all that injustice, and just to stay happily at home, peacefully with my two daughters, enjoying my breakfast. I, it, it was no longer possible for me to go on with my life while people were dying on the street. You said then that it, that it felt like a conversation, and I think that there's something so powerful about street art where it's, it's literally the conversation beneath the conversation, the, the actual unvarnished thoughts and ideas of a, of a society where all other avenues of having a voice have sometimes been taken away. That conversation that emerged through through the art on the walls. What 
What did you see happening as a result of that? I think the conversation, I think what's the new dynamic that happened during the Egyptian revolution is the online, offline um, cycle of conversation that was taking place. So, I, I, and I will describe it from my point of view, and this is only personal, but I am one example um, uh, that we can use. Um, I would, for nine months, I saw injustice unfo- un- un- uh, unfolding in front of me on the streets of Egypt and, and Cairo. But at the same time, I was seeing the creativity, the power, the beauty of the people and how they were reacting and retaliating. I heard their chants. I saw their artwork. I saw the, the rallying in the square. I saw how creative um, the street was, how amazing and how powerful the energy of the collective was. And all that was through the screen. I wasn't in the square and for nine months, I was seeing beauty and power and uh, eloquent speeches by street sellers, by street children, by bakers, by teachers, by musicians, by artists, by lawyers. And, and this was all streaming uh, online. The accumulation of all that, it was not only the the brutality of the regime that got me to the street. It was the beauty and magnificence and creativity of the people on the street that drove me to the street. And there's something incredible in that, that, you know, the symbols you were using were, were a storytelling form thousands of years old, and yet here now, they're part of a new form of storytelling and an, an online form of storytelling, a form of storytelling that, is, that isn't always elegant, but is very real, very immediate and travels very, very fast. You had said that, you know, your work can be erased. You know, street art by its nature can be erased. Art by its nature can be erased. However, the internet cannot. Is that why you think that the combination of those two things is so powerful? Yes, I think it's um, it's it's that conversation, but also now I'm realizing that that we need all all the channels possible um, to keep telling the story, because even online things are being removed systematically. It's very unfortunate, but this is what we are living in right now. And um, this is why I'm trying to turn into books, safe external servers, um, more peop- telling more people about the story, making the story available to bigger audiences, and securing that the story will live on to the next generation. I think this is our mission right now, is making sure that we keep telling the story we keep reminding everybody of what happened and we keep making sure that uh, the story lives because there is a systematic effort to erase it, oppress it and make sure nobody hears about it. What's the, what's the role of the storytellers in that, whether your storytelling form is music, art, um, verbal, written, are they the most pivotal force that will keep that alive? Uh, definitely, definitely. Because uh, aud- audiences, there are different kinds of audiences. You have the intellectual audience who we communicate with academic books and conferences and um, universities and the relatively more or less the limited circles of of. of uh, of the academic uh, um, arena, but there's most of the people are not academic. I mean, the majority of humanity does not have access or privilege to have a university education. How do you talk to them? And the easiest way is through art, is through 
stories, stories that are visual stories, that are musical stories, that are um, simplified and accessible to a, gr a greater, a greater um, population. And we, and we need all forms because some people are more comfortable receiving information in one form rather than the other. But I think we need all forms. We need to write books. We need to keep singing the songs. We need to keep making the art. And we hope that the story lives through any medium that we create. I want to, I want to talk about being talked over. One of the risks of saying no at any level is that you will be talked over or shouted over or, or in this case, painted over. There was a, a wall in Cairo and a group of artists, I, I believe, painted a tank. Can you explain what happened? What happened after that? None, none of the, this exists now. It has all been erased. So, but, but with that wall, what was interesting was the conversations that were taking place. So some would write, others would come erase. Some others would come write, and some, and some others would come erase. So it was a continuous conversation taking place and unfolding uh, before us, um, which was amazing to see and document and be part of. And that, that conversation, the fact that once you've said no, once it's not enough, you have to be prepared that it will be painted over, you have to be prepared that there will be something you need to listen to in response, regardless of whether you agree or disagree. Um, is there anything that you learnt about that process? Yes, what was very interesting is that uh, how can one word or one work of art or one stencil tell you if that street supports what you're saying or it doesn't? Because as the faster you get erased the more uh, it means that they are supporters of the regime <laughs> on that street. And sometimes some artworks lived on to be a year, for a year or a year and a half until they were found and, and uh, covered. So it, it helped in a way. It was an indicator of the political affiliation of different um, neighborhoods. One of the messages from your art read, long live a peaceful revolution because we will never retaliate with violence. And it got me, I actually thought a lot about this and I thought a lot about it last night and I've been thinking a lot about it today. Do you, do you believe in all of these experiences that you have had, do you believe a no can be quiet or gentle and still have power? It takes much more time. It it uh, it needs more work. It needs more grit. It needs more. It needs more perseverance. Um, so I do think that uh, um, the way for us to face uh, aggressive aggressive uh, oppression today is by teaching and finding alternative, kinder ways to enforce change. It all goes back to the concept of empathy. So if you have enough empathy to understand that your jailer is actually ignorant and has not been taught better and has not been shown better um, ways to be a human being, or to exist that they don't know. This is, this is as much as the uh, lack of privilege that they had has given them. If you, if you put yourself in their shoe and you develop the empathy, and I know that, that this is, I'm not the one being uh, jailed, so it's easy for me to say that. I'm not suffering from the direct oppression I'm speaking as somebody who's looking at things. I'm sure that my discourse would be very different if I were the one thrown in jail 
and left to rot for years by an oppressive regime. But I, I still think that no matter how aggressive a dictatorship can be, a good planning and the persistent endeavor of trying to change should be possible. Would you, would you do anything differently now, knowing what you know, having seen what you saw? Actually, there are some things that I have posted online that when I read today, I, I like, I kind of like flint, like I, I feel very, I feel very um, uncomfortable reading now because I think what a naive person I was to write these things and not know and not understand. But I choose to leave them because they represent a, a place or a, a time when I, as a human being, uh, was in that place and these were my thoughts. But I have evolved very far from these ideas. But honestly, if I didn't think these, I didn't, if I didn't have these ideas, I wouldn't be the person I am today. So it, it's, a, it's a matter of evolution. I think this is why when you ask everybody, would you change anything? They tell you, no, I would relive it the same way. It's simply because the consequences of events actually make us who we are today. And if you, if you, didn't, if you didn't go through this line, this destiny, this history, it wouldn't make you who you are today. As the way that you approach the word no, the way that you use the word no, the way that you hear the word no, has that, has that changed significantly over the time of researching it, using it, seeing the consequences of it? There was a time where, where I get tired and then I stop it and I start trying to work with other things, but my, the main realization is that now it's a lifelong thing and I think I need to teach more people to say it. I think this is now part of my mission that I, I would like to see more women using it, honestly. I, I would like to help them uh, change their reality and, um, uh, and use it more. And the way I would use it is, um, has not necessarily changed. What I feel is wrong in the world in 2010, I still feel is wrong in the world today. Um, so I think I, we, we have to keep saying no to things, at least until um, a majority of us lead or can live better lives. You, you've got me, I'm just thinking in this moment, how would you teach that? How do you, I mean, I, you have daughters, I have a daughter. Um, how do you teach that? The ability to, to say no, hold your no, enforce your no in, in wise ways, safe ways. I think for women, it's to have more role models. It's our job to show them and share with them and share the narrative of other women who have done it and who have succeeded, whether scientists or authors or makers or inventors, or, but they do exist. And we really need to um, uh, bring out all of these stories uh, and, and share them with the younger generation of women. What advice, I know it's difficult to give advice, um, but if you had to give a piece of advice to a woman or a man or a parent who was looking to, to tap into harnessing their no, is there one piece of advice you would give them? I think it would be to believe in the kindness in themselves and believe that they can change things no matter how small that belief is 
no matter how small the thing that they want to change. Um, but I think with kindness, you can do anything. And if um, and this is why I wouldn't ask for an aggressive no, but a kind no. And I think this is how we can change the world, with kindness and not with aggression. And, and also backing yourself with other people that can say kind no's on your behalf. The volume of all of those kind no's and the, the power and the strength of that. You know, saying it on your own is often difficult, but if you have a if you have a community behind you that also says no on your behalf. Oh, definitely, yes, of course. And if you want to change things, you need to find your crowd. You need to find the people who believe in what you what you are saying. Of course, you can. It you can never do it alone. Definitely, you need to reach out to like-minded people and from dif- different uh, disciplines, from, dif- from different uh, social classes, from different walks of life, and you unite your know together. You found, you found a message in a field hospital in, in Tahir, and the message read, you can crush the flowers, but you can't delay spring which in and of itself is such a powerful such a powerful message what does that mean to you now it's it still resonates i think it and this is the beauty about uh, uh, poetry or good poetry it lives it it's still it's still relevant it's still meaningful it's still valid it's still useful it will remain useful for the next hundred generations uh, because it's so true and it's so human. And do you you still feel like spring, like spring is coming? I I'm an um, <laughs> I'm an optimist. I can't help it. It's. Uh, it's not something that I can help. It's um, it's my uh, coping mechanism because without it, I don't think there's any reason for for me to live. I would have no reason to live if I don't have this at least this hope. My my final question is: if I if I could give you a platform, if I could give you a stage, and in front of you I could put everybody that you would ever want to reach or influence and I gave you a microphone and and five minutes what's the one thing one thing that you would want them to know or to understand again it would be kindness I know it's such a simple thing it might seem even naive for me to ask people to be kind but honestly if governments are kind and they're not thinking about um, um, making profit for people in corporations or people in government. If if they are if they are only focused on greed, if man, I mean we we're looking at capitalism now. I'm not sure um, everybody's aware of how much we have failed in that module and how much we are all suffering because of it, and not us as human, but our planet. If you are kind, you are kind to the environment. If you are kind, you are kind to your fellow humans. If you are kind, you are kind to the animals around you. So, um, um, I think this is this is something that is so basic. It's so human, and and for some reason we have completely forgotten about it. It's not being practiced uh, in in any circle, in many circles. Even in 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 corporations, in un, at universities, in schools, in playgrounds, in in factories, if we just if we just learn how to be kind to each other, I don't think we would be where we are today, or we would be losing our planet the way we are losing it. What what have your experiences 
taught you about the word no? That it's a very powerful word, word that it should be used intelligently, that it should be timed well when it's used, that it should be sometimes used aggressively, sometimes used kindly based on the situation, um, that it should be used. Thank you so much for taking the time to to be on the podcast and, and to do this interview. And I know that you that there are risks involved in in using your voice. And so I very much appreciate you being willing to take part. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, do you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch? Or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.